Welcome to the Equipping Webinar, where we connect discipleship, theology, and apologetics to everyday life. Welcome to the June 2017 version of the Equipping Webinar. My name is Nathan. I'm the Director of Equipping and Apologetics here at Watermark. And to my right is Sylvia Bateman, who is makes this a lot more fun, the fact that she's in here. So welcome wow. to the webinar. And I bring Sylvia. the snacks, so that could have something to do with dude, it, you too. totally do. I'm excited to be here. It's our 15th webinar. Can't think of a better Ooh. guest to have, so know, very right? exciting. Totally awesome. So Sylvia is, is going to be moderating your questions. And then we really are blessed to have in the studio with us today, Dr. Dan Wallace. He is the Executive Director of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, right? Say, say that really fast a bunch of different times. And uh, he's also the Senior Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, he was my advanced Greek grammar professor back in the day. So uh, he's tortured me in various ways. But you uh, deserved it. I did deserve it, yeah. And uh, and then he's also just been a friend. He, he actually officiated my wedding. He was standing there with me and Margaret when we made vows to one another. So Dan, thanks for being a part of this webinar today. We really I'm appreciate it. I'm delighted to be here, Nathan. Good to see you again. Well, Dan has written a book along with Ed Kamashevsky and James Sawyer called Reinventing Jesus, How Contemporary Skeptics Miss the Real Jesus and Mislead Popular Culture. So a lot of this conversation actually today is really going to be just outlining through y'all's book. But you guys talk about oral tradition. You talk about the text of the New Testament, the variants, the type of variants, the manuscript evidence of the New Testament. And then you'll also talk about the various views on the divinity of Jesus. And so I would just encourage you guys as as you're listening to this, uh, man, pick up this book. It's written at a lay level. The standard person is going to be able to understand this stuff. And also it's going to give you what you need when some of these common questions get asked to you. And a lot of times we get tongue tied because we're like, uh, I don't know how to, I don't know the answer to that question is. This is going to give you the, the resource and the tools to be able to address uh, these questions that are commonly asked really well. And, and so I would encourage you um, to pick that up. But Dan, why don't we start this way? One, tell us a little bit about yourself. And then how in the world does a guy get into the field of textual criticism? And frankly, what is textual criticism? Well, I'm a, a fourth generation Californian who uh, has lived in Texas most of his life. My wife and I just celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary. Awesome. Congratulations. And uh, we have four adult sons, uh, three daughters-in-law, three granddaughters, and a grandson is coming next month. All right. Wow. Congratulations. So, yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, uh, I moved here for my THM program at Dallas Seminary, got my master's and doctorate, and I've been on faculty at Dallas for more than 30 years. I love it. So what, in, in your academic career, like what prompted you to get into the field of textual criticism? Help our audience understand what that even is. Textual criticism is uh, a discipline that has historically been the most important discipline for all ancient manuscripts because we don't have the originals of any literary documents of the Greco-Roman world. Consequently, Textual criticism is the science and art of trying to determine the exact wording of the originals when those are missing or destroyed. New Testament textual criticism is simply applied to the New Testament. We don't have the originals of the New Testament either, and we are trying to get back to the original wording on the basis of the numerous manuscripts that we have. How I got into it, uh, it was really uh, very simple. I was 16 years old when I made a, a radical commitment to Christ 
And I was uh, in, in uh, growing up in uh, Newport Beach where I spent all my time body surfing. The surf sucks in Texas. It's just terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I visited a man who owned a real estate office, and uh, he had a huge sign over his, over his real estate office that says, Jesus saves. Hmm. So I was, you know, just 16-year-old and all lapping up whatever I could find about uh, Jesus. And so I met this guy, and he sold me uh, today's English version, Good News for Modern Man. Uh, paperback New Testaments at 25 cents a pop if I'd buy a box load. Mm. And so I'd buy a box of these, put them in my little Volkswagen Beetle, drive up and down Coast Highway, pick up hitchhikers, share the gospel, and I'd run out of New Testaments about every three or four weeks and come back and get another box. That's cool. Meanwhile, I'm talking to this fellow, and he says, by the way, Jesus is not God. He's got this big billboard that says Jesus saves, Jesus saves <laughs> yeah. but he was an Arian, someone who oh, denies wow. the deity of Christ. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't a Jehovah's Witness. But he was an Aryan. Yeah. And so uh, I got confused and I thought, I need to get into this. So I decided I've got to learn Greek and I've got to uh, study the Greek New Testament and learn about Greek grammar so I can know what the text says, mm -hmm. but also, or what it means, and textual criticism so I could be sure of what it actually says. Yeah. So I went to Biola University, studied under the great Harry Sturz. I uh, took four years of Greek there and then uh, double majored in it at uh, Dallas Seminary. Got, I think, seven years of it, 14 classes at DTS. Yeah, yeah. Continue on. So that's that's how I got into it. It's all been related to my spiritual walk with the Lord. Mm, that's awesome. Who, who knew in the providence of God, right, that an Aryan would drive you into, you know, right. to, uh, to, to contribute what you've contributed to really strengthening the church. Con controversy and heresy has a way of making Christians a lot stronger. I know, right? That's really cool. So uh, I feel like, uh, what was it, 10, 15 years ago, um, kind of out, out of the, really the, your house <laughs> in a lot of ways, you founded the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. And so tell, tell everybody what that is, what's the goal of CSNTM, and what's going on right now? Well, here's a, a thing for the audience to understand about it to begin with. If you want to visit our website uh, it's uh, csntm.org, and here's a way to remember CSNTM, even if you're driving on the road and, and picking this up. If, if, is that possible? Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, people do that. If you remember CS as in C.S. Lewis, you got the first two initials. <laughs> and if you've ever watched Wizard of Oz, you know who Auntie M is. So CS Auntie, Auntie M. M. There you go. <laughs> Don't forget it. Yeah, yeah. So I started it uh, 15 years ago, and it was for years in my living room and closets and things like this. We'd go on one expedition a year. Our goal was to uh, initially to digitize Greek New Testament manuscripts throughout the world, make these images available online. And as we grew, it was the goal was to try to digitize all of them. So far in 15 years, we have digitized 20% of all Greek New Testament manuscripts, wow. half a million pages. Mm. Uh, and we're increasing more every year how much we get done. Mm. Uh, but uh, uh, we're the world's leader in doing that. We've discovered more than 90 Greek New Testament manuscripts in the process, awesome. more than all the rest of the institutes in the world combined mm -hmm. have discovered in the last 15 years. And the end goal is to make these available online, free for all, free for all time, so that scholars can now use these images to create better editions of the Greek New Testament, which then become the basis for translations. We are beginning to stand at the head of the stream of all future translations of the New Testament that affect Christians throughout the world. I love it. So tell us why why is it important? Why is it important to take 
uh, high resolution photograph of these manuscripts? Well, all we had before was uh, microfilms. Mm. And microfilm quality is so bad. It's horrible. Uh, it, yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> it, it looks like lines and bumps. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's, you can barely read it. You can't read it if it's red letters. There's lots and lots of uh, text and manuscripts that are written in other than black ink. You can't read it if it's faint. You can't read if it's gold letters. There's sometimes uh, mm. the scribes write an entire manuscript in gold letters. And you also cannot read the marginal notes where a scribe says he may be making a correction to mm. what he had in the text. He may be adding something that he had accidentally left out. And it's just a, a, a big blob mm. in the margin because it's smaller hand. You can't read the commentary. Scribes often put in patristic, patristic commentaries in with the text and that's uh, often a wraparound. You've got the text in the center of the manuscript, and you know, have three sides where the uh, patristic commentary in smaller font is used. Yeah. Can't read it. Too small. So basically, in, in all of this, you're, you're giving scholars the capacity to read very clearly what these manuscripts actually say so that they can make better judgments in the future on creating editions of the New Testament. Absolutely. We, we are partnering with... Uh, the Institute for New Testament Textual Research in Münster, Germany, that produces our standard Greek New Testaments. Mm. And they, they get our images so that they can create better uh, publications of the Greek text. Yeah. They, they know what these manuscripts say now. Mm. Uh, they are the ones who reached out to us and said, we'd like to partner with you. It's not just so that we can read them more clearly. It's also to digitally preserve them in mm. case they get deteriorated, which all manuscripts yeah. do, get destroyed, Many manuscripts are now being destroyed intentionally. Mm. Uh, ISIS just attacked the oldest continuously inhabited monastery in the world, St. Catherine's at uh, base of Mount Sinai, Egypt. They wow. did it last month. They killed one policeman, injured four others. It's the first time they've attacked a Greek Orthodox monastery. Mm. And their goal is to destroy Christian artifacts, as they've been doing for some time, yeah, especially right. the biblical manuscripts. Mm. So there, there's some urgency in yeah. us getting this done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're listening to this and you're not necessarily tracking along with what we're saying, basically this is what Dan is doing is preserving the text of the New Testament in such a way where where people will, like he said, have it available and available for all time because it's been digitized and copied and copied and copied. And there's multiple uh, copies of those uh, digital files that is the text of the New Testament. And so I was telling some uh, people last night at a class I teach on discipleship, I was promoing the webinar and I just said, hey, I, I think this is really important um, because I think in a hundred years, whether it's people intentionally destroying them like ISIS or there's a fire or there's whatever, you know, and we lose these things, the fact that, that CSNTM and others like you guys have preserved this, I think people are going to look back in a hundred years and really point to this type of work as monumental. And so one, as somebody who has been on an expedition and also knows what you guys are doing, I would just tell you guys, thank you for this work. Oh, thank you. And, uh, and I would also encourage, I know Sylvia may have sent you guys a link to CSNTM, but of all organizations that we would say, hey, let's support these guys. <laughs> um, this is one of them that I'm raising my hand going, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to use my relational equity to, to, uh, to get support for the ongoing work of CSNTM. If I, I, I uh, we were at a monastery recently in Greece, where in uh, about a century ago they had a major fire, arson, and they lost thirty-nine Greek mm -hmm. New Testament manuscripts, mm -hmm. completely destroyed. Yeah. They were pitching them out the window from the library. 
people were dying while they're throwing these manuscripts out because they wanted to save the manuscripts. One manuscript was hid underneath a casserole dish that was flipped upside down, and it was saved that way. Wow. But this kind of stuff does happen, mm -hmm. and, and it continues to happen. We, we're trying to preserve these yeah. things. We have expeditions this summer that we've already begun, and it, it, it costs quite a bit to fly the staff over to yeah. bring really expensive state-of-the-art equipment. We really need to raise, frankly, $10,000 in the next three weeks to keep going what we're doing this summer. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is kind of the Indiana Jones version of, of uh, preserving the New Testament. So, No, um, Indiana Jones was an American imperialist <laughs> thief. <you know> that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all, you got, it's all, like Indiana Jones, except not at all. Yeah, <laughs> all all we take is pictures. We don't <laughs> yeah, take that's right. yeah, that's right. Okay, thanks for the correction. <laughs> okay, well, let's launch into what... Um, uh, we really, this is the equipping portion of this time. And if you're listening to this and I guarantee you at some point in conversations with skeptics or people who don't believe, and frankly too, Christians who are just ill-informed, one of the most common questions that comes across, especially in our apologetics ministry and the great questions team is, Hey, if this book has been translated so many times, how in the world do we even know what it says? Can it be trusted? You hear that question a lot. So what would you say to that, Dan? It's a question I had when I was in junior high school and high school. But here's the problem with that question. It assumes that once it's copied, once it's translated, somebody destroys that original manuscript. Mm -hmm. That thing is still uh, extant, still intact. We still have the Greek New Testament manuscripts that stand behind the King James Bible. We know what they are. We know where they are. And uh, they're actually very recent compared to the King James, just 500 years older than the King James, but at the very oldest. Mm. But we have now manuscripts that go back much, much older than that. Right, right. And it's not just translations. We're looking at the Greek New Testament manuscripts, what the original language was. If you think about uh, something like the telephone game where you've got a line of people telling a story, uh, whispering into the next person's ear, the intention of that game by the, by the time you get it to the last person is to get that total story garbled. People are intentionally trying to change it. Yeah. It's, it's a fun parlor game. But some people have said the copying of the New Testament was like that. That's, that's hardly the truth. Mm. First of all, we're dealing with written documents. Right. Secondly, we're not whispering. Third, <laughs> we have several lines of transmission. Fourth, we can check various stages of those lines of transmission. So if I went back to, say, three lines of transmission and I saw a third generation and a fourth generation and, and a second generation copy in each one of these and compared them, I could come very close to reconstructing what the original wording said. Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've got manuscripts as old as the second century now. Mm, yeah. There's a great little exercise that you do with some people called the gospel according to Snoopy. And you do this with them um, where you, you'll you have an original deal and then you'll break it out to various groups and see if they can reconstruct it. Right. And uh, talk to us about the results that you see just in that game where it illustrates what, we're, what you're talking about. I have done the, the Snoopy seminar uh, 79 times, oh, I believe, wow. uh, in the last 40 years. And it's a, it's a nine hour seminar Friday night and virtually all day Saturday. I take 22 people who are volunteers to be scribes. They copy out an ancient text. They don't know what it is till the next day. Yeah. And they take it through six generations of copies. Each scribe is given instructions like you're hard of hearing or you're a sloppy writer or you want to change this to make it more orthodox or move in this direction. Yeah. And then we throw all the way the first generation copies, most of the second generation, you know, and so the next day 
the next morning when we start on Saturday, we have the textual critics who have had all of one hour of training right. <laughs> trying to reconstruct the original text of Snoopy, and it takes them three or four hours just mm -hmm. to try to do this in different groups with a method that I lay out. And then we produce the text of Snoopy up on a, a couple of whiteboards, and there it, it, it's like a 50, 75-word original text. And there's about 50, 75, 100 textual variants right, right. that we're dealing with. And all these people, the entire group, has to try to figure out what the original text of Snoopy said. Mm -hmm. Now, the scribes are dead. You know, they died yeah, overnight. Yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> they died overnight. <laughs> so, um, but they're, they're kind of ghostly observers. Yeah, I guess. right, right. And uh, I've done this, uh, you know, dozens, scores of times. Uh, every time except three times, we've gotten within two words mm. of reconstructing the text of Snoopy. The last time I did it, we, we got it perfectly, which has happened now uh, almost 20 times. Wow. And uh, the only three times that we didn't do it were with some Stanford eggheads who were overthinking the process. <laughs> Dallas Seminary PhD students <laughs> yeah, overthinking, overthinking the, process. the process. Yeah, yeah. And then a, a church where they didn't understand English very well. So the <laughs> scribes didn't know what they couldn't <laughs> even read English. the English. <laughs> I love it. But that just goes to illustrate like we're, we're, this is that's nothing like the telephone game, which is what a lot of people Absolutely. think about. And then also, and this is what I tell people on uh, Monday nights when this question comes up in great questions is the, the translation, like you said, uh, question assumes that the thing that we're translating off of is gone. And uh, it's not. It's very much alive. And and so really translation has less to do with the fact that it becomes less reliable over time. It has everything to do with this uh, translation committee is making decisions based on their audience, what who they're trying to communicate to. So you're going to have someone like Eugene Peterson, who's going to translate the text into and really paraphrase it in a lot of ways to put it into the hands of somebody who's never read the Bible before so that they can understand in a simpler way versus a committee who like the new American standard Bible, that's going to be more wooden and, uh, and frankly, harder to read and sometimes harder to understand. Not, not because anything's different about it, but just their, the decisions they're making, the committees are making have to do with those types of things. Right. You've got really three different issues when it comes to translation. What is the, one is the textual basis what are they translating? Mm -hmm. Two is how are they interpreting it? And three is the audience, the receptor, receptors that is in terms of how do you want to word this for that? So if you've got a more paraphrastic translation, that's related to the audience. But virtually all modern translations, almost all of them are based on almost exactly the same critical text. Right. Now, there may be um, uh, dozens, maybe even hundreds of places, a few hundred places where it differs, but almost never are these uh, really significant. Right. So really the real question that I think people should be asking is not, it's been translated so many times, how can we trust it? The real question is, okay, the thing that you're translating off of, has that been corrupted over time? Now that's a legitimate question. It is a legitimate So, question. So let's go there. Has scripture been corrupted over time? These texts that we're translating off of, have they been corrupted? Yes, scripture has been corrupted. <laughs> yes, <time>. they have. <laughs> uh, any handwritten documents that's of, of more than a few pages, there are going to be mistakes in the transmission process. And when it comes to the New Testament, it's not quite like the Old Testament, but I, I won't even address that issue. There's yeah, some, that's another webinar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But uh, when it comes to the New Testament, we have about the latest estimate is about one half million 
textual differences among the various manuscripts. That's, that's a pretty large number. When you think about the original text of the New Testament, it's less than 140,000 words. Mm -hmm. So to have a half million textual variants means, gee, what is that, three and a half variants per word on yeah. average? Yeah. And uh, so if that's the only data you had, you say, well, I'm, I'm going to become an atheist and <laughs> sell all my bags. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it. But now I'll do a Paul Harvey tell the rest of the story. Yeah, that's good. Uh, those half a million variants, first of all, the reason we have so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts. Mm. Uh, the, the latest count that CSNTM has done, because we've, we're not only uh, 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 photographing manuscripts, we're also discovering them. Mm. The latest count was 5,860 Greek New Testament manuscripts. That's just in Greek. Mm. But I'm going to announce that we now know of 5,861 as of last week when I was in the mountains of the Peloponnese and visited a monastery that had a manuscript that's unknown to biblical scholars. Mm. So now you guys have the latest wow. information. So <laughs> there's one more. There's one more, 5,861. Uh, if you go into Starbucks tomorrow and you say, you know, there's uh, 5,861 Greek New Testament manuscripts and a, and a skeptic says, I thought there were only 5,843. Like, they would, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you can correct them with this latest information. But not only do we have Greek New Testament manuscripts, and by the way, the average-sized Greek New Testament manuscripts is more than 450 pages. Mm -hmm. Not only do we have the Greek, it was translated very early on into Latin, Syriac, Coptic, Old Church, Slavonic, Georgian, Gothic, other languages. We have over 10,000 copies in Latin alone. Mm -hmm. And then in the other languages, we really don't have an exact number, but it's somewhere between... Uh, I, I think a, a bare minimum would be 5,000, but let's go with that number. That means we have collectively among the manuscripts about 20, 25,000 manuscripts of various languages, mm. handwritten manuscripts before the time of the printing press. Mm. Now, if I had a magic wand and could wipe all of those out, we still wouldn't be left without a witness. And that's because of these pesky little guys called church fathers yeah, yeah. <laughs> who just love to comment on scripture and they did not have the gift of brevity. Yeah, yeah. And they quoted and quoted and quoted <laughs> scripture yeah. over and over again. We have more than a million quotations of the New Testament by these church fathers from the late first century through the 13th century. And, and we're not done counting them yet. It, it's taking a long time because there's so much material. Mm. We could reproduce virtually the entire New Testament many, many times over on the basis of the quotations of the church fathers alone, yeah, if we well, have no manuscript evidence whatsoever. Yeah. There's so, nothing that compares to this. Yeah. So as far as the corruption of it goes, what I'm hearing you say is there, this definitely, especially in antiquity, is by far the most well-attested document. Um, Absolutely. Like without question. And so I think that then the next question becomes, well, what about these variants? I mean, if there's 138,000 words in the New Testament and there's almost a half a million variants, for those, so there's three and a half for every word, like you said, that some that could leave you going like, uh, why in the world would I trust this at all? You right. know, and so talk to us about clearly the because it's been hand handwritten and copied over time, there are differences um, like copying a word twice, or I know you'll get into some more examples about this, but let's talk about those variants. So what is a textual variant um, in the New Testament? Help us understand what that is, and and then talk to us about kind of how you categorize those. 
A textual variant is any place where there's differences between a base text and uh, any at least one manuscript. So if uh, it, it can be uh, differences in spelling, word order, uh, transpositions, additions, omissions, just about anything. Scribes getting tired and skipping a line or copying a line twice yeah, or they, something like they that. they do all yeah. sorts of things. Yeah, so yeah. I've been wrestling the last couple of years with how many lines would a scribe write out in a day. And as we've been plowing through some early manuscripts lately, we're discovering this guy is starting to get a cluster of mistakes. This must be at the end of his shift. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he's tired. He, he just doesn't. Somebody make give mistakes. that guy a break, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I did an experiment a few years ago on how many ways you can say John loves Mary in Greek, and it took me eight hours to write out all the ways to do mm, it. Yeah. And I didn't even finish. Uh, I wow. just felt this is good. Every <laughs> okay, I'm it, done. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's enough. <laughs> time Eight to hours, go to bed, yeah. Time for me to quit, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, I, I came up with, uh, I think, 384 different ways in Greek that are always translated, John loves Mary, and it always uses the, the same verb. Mm. Now, there's different Verbs, verbs for, for love. love. So yeah. now you double yeah. that, and there were other ways to say it. So it comes out to about 1,200 ways, which don't significantly change the meaning. If you can take that three-word translation and have 1,200 different ways to say it in Greek, how many uh, variants, when you have three and a half variants per word on mm -hmm. average, mm -hmm. is that that significant? No, the question really is how important are these variants? What, what's the nature of the variants? The vast majority are simply spelling differences. Right. And, and then you've got uh, word order differences that don't get translated. You get uh, some other things that uh, can't be translated at all. So um, even though they're not word order differences, I'd say 99.8%, this is my, my latest estimate, 99.8% of all textual variants are either not meaningful or not viable. That is, they don't have a chance of going back to the original text. Right, they're clear, they're obviously not original to the, right. or the right. original text. I mean, there's yeah. all sorts of interesting ones that come late, but they're not viable. Yeah, it's right. One right. 13th century manuscript, no, it doesn't go back to the original. Yeah, right. Or they're both not viable and not meaningful. 99.8%. So yeah. that leaves so maybe about a thousand variants yep. that are significant. But how significant are they really? Uh, let me give you an example. In uh, Mark 9.29, we have uh, the disciples come back from trying to... Uh, uh, cast out a demon, a, a particularly pesky demon who was, uh, yeah. you know, resistant. And uh, Jesus said, this kind cannot be cast out apart from prayer and fasting. Mm -hmm. Now, did he say prayer and fasting or as the earliest manuscripts have uh, with prayer? This cannot be ca cast out unless it's with prayer. Did he add and fasting? Mm. That's kind of an important point, yeah, you know, yeah. but the earliest manuscripts don't have that. That is... I think is a, a very important issue for those who are involved in exorcisms. They got to know, do yeah. I need to fast also? Now yeah. I actually helped a guy exercise a house once and there, there were demons that yeah. were throwing things yeah. across yeah. the room. And, wow. and, and I decided, you know, even though I think the, the text ends with prayer, I'm going to hedge my bet. And I, I fasted also before. I yeah, 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 that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give another illustration of something perhaps a bit more uh, significant. And, and if you Google this, don't do it now, please. Uh, I'm, I'm talking, so don't do it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Revelation 13, 18, that's the number of the beast. Yeah, yeah. Six, six, six. six, six, six. Yeah, Everybody yeah. knows yeah, that's yeah. the number of the beast. Yeah. Well, really? Hmm. Well, uh, in the second century, Irenaeus knew of uh, a different reading, 616. He rejected it, 
But he said, I know of some manuscripts already in the second century that had that. It may be the original. Mm. To date, we have found only two manuscripts that have it. One of these was just discovered in the last 20 years at Oxford University. But they, it's the earliest papyrus for this passage. And the other manuscript is the second most important manuscript we have on Revelation. And they both have the number of the beast as 616. Mm. Now, it may be that's the number of the beast. It, it, it kind of depends on what day it is, whether I think uh, the number of the beast is 616 <laughs> or 666, or I don't think about it most times. Right? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but uh, what's interesting is most scholars still would say, well, we think uh, 666, that's the number of the beast. 616, that's the neighbor of the beast. He goes a few doors <laughs> down. You know. Yeah, you have to walk down the street to get to the, <laughs> the, neighbor, the, of the, the neighbor of the beast. How do you like to live in that zip code? I know, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, that's funny. So I'm hearing you say that there, there are different categories and the VAT 99.8% of these, uh, vari- of the four to 500,000 variants that there are, are not, they're either not meaningful and not viable. In other words, they're clearly, you know, added uh, later, or they might potentially change the meaning, but also they're, they've clearly been added later. They're not right. just not viable. Um, right. They don't belong there. But then there are some, like you said, that either aren't very meaningful, but they are viable. Um, yeah, certain spellings, like the name John in Greek has two N's in the middle or one N, Ioannes. Yep. Every time you see the name John, you got some manuscripts with one N or two. And by the way, there are certain apologists who have counted texture variants a wrong way. Mm-hmm. Ever since a book came out in 1963, what, they, what they've done is they've said, uh, you count a variant by how many, uh, you, you, the wording, times how many manuscripts have that wording yeah that's not valid mm. you count a texture variant by just the wording so it doesn't matter if there's a thousand manuscripts that have it yep or one manuscript that has it mm-hmm. that's one texture variant, variant. So. yeah 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 and then but then there's there's this last category that you talked about with like the number of the beast and you've been a part of translation committees where you guys are sitting around with these things and you have to make a decision what are we going to say to put into our translation of this text. And those are the ones that, as you guys go around and talk about it, where you're like, hey, we think that this is the closest to the original. But talk to us a little bit about some major variants. I mean, there's two of them that come to mind that are really obvious, like John 7:53 to 8:11, where if you're reading, like if you have access to a Bible right now and you open it to that passage, more than likely, the translation committee has put that section of scripture into a bracket or have noted it in some way to right. say the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have this section in it. So, And then the other one I'm thinking about is the longer ending of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. So talk to us about some of those major variants, because I mean, I mean, honestly, you start talking about this stuff and people are like, wait a second. That's my favorite story in the Bible, you know, the 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 woman caught in adultery. Yeah, not the know? Mark 16. That typically isn't. Really yeah, happening. Mark 16 is more like people scratch their head and go, hey, I hope that's not original, yeah, you know. Yeah, but Snake handlers in West Virginia. I, like I know, right? Handlers. Yeah, I hear you. But talk to us especially about the adulterous woman and how should we handle that? Well, these two passages are far and away the longest textual variants we have in the New Testament. Both are 12 verses long. The next largest context variant we have is two verses. Mm-hmm. And we only have about two dozen that are one or two verses. Then all the rest of them are parts of a verse, phrases, individual words, or just letters. Mm-hmm. So people think, the you know, when you hear about this, uh, you think, oh, my gosh, do we have all these kinds of variants that are this huge? No, we have two mm-hmm. this big. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery, 
I, I agree. That's my favorite passage that's not in the in Bible. The Bible. <laughs> Uh, I love it. It's a great text. It yeah. speaks of the forgiveness of Jesus, his tenderness in, in situations like that and dealing with uh, hypocrites. But uh, the question I have is, is that not taught elsewhere in mm -hmm. the Gospels? Mm -hmm. Of course it is. Yeah, right. He forgives sinners and he addresses hypocrites harshly, uh, constantly. Uh, otherwise, we'd have some problems seeing who the real Jesus was. But in terms of the evidence... About 20% of all of our Greek manuscripts do not have the story of the woman caught in adultery. Mm. Our earliest don't have it. We don't have any church father that, that has a commentary on it for a thousand years. Wow. And uh, uh, the, the versions, uh, most of those don't have lectionaries. You, you don't have manuscripts that have commentaries. Uh, typically do not have it. manuscripts without commentaries uh, frequently will. But when you get through the first eight centuries, we've only got four or five manuscripts that do have it. Our earliest, like P66, uh, an early papyrus from the uh, about AD 200, it lacks it. Mm -hmm. P75, not quite the same text, but they're they're similar from a different area, also lacks it. Uh, the, the oldest complete Greek New Testament, Codex Sinaiticus or Olive, found at St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt and now at the British Library, also lacks it. So does Codex Alexandrinus, 5th century, Codex Vatican. You go on and mm -hmm. on and yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And then you look at the internal evidence, the syntax, the style, uh, there's vocabulary, all sorts of things that just don't it's look like John. Different, yep. And you also look at it as a floating text. It doesn't just occur here. Yep. It's in six different places. One place is after Luke 21, 38. Mm. And it actually fits with Luke's style far better than yeah, John's. Yeah, yeah, a little better, yeah. Uh, sometimes scribes just put it at the end of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I saw one manuscript that had, it did not have the texture variant. This was in Albania. I mean, it didn't have the story of the woman caught in adultery. But a later scribe came along, and he was so furious that it didn't have it. He writes out on paper, not parchment, but he writes out the story of the woman caught in adultery and stitches it into the next page <laughs> with five big stitches. Wow. It's an obvious, not a delicate operation. It's an angry thing. Yeah, yeah. And then on the back of that, you have some child writing out the story of the woman caught in adultery again. Wow. This may be a pastor, a local pastor, who's complaining about it. Yeah. Hey, he left this out. I'm going to put it in here. Yeah, because yeah, it's my favorite story, too. <laughs> you know? What are you guys doing? Yeah. Now you get to Mark 16, and the situation is significantly different. We have far more evidence that that's authentic than we do the story of the woman caught in adultery. Mm. Our oldest two manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus from the fourth century, lack it. Uh, but the syntax, the vocabulary, the style don't fit. Eternal, yeah. There are other uh, endings to Mark's gospel, and that particular ending uh, has a resurrection appearance by Jesus to the disciples. If Mark intended to end his gospel at 16.8, says the angel told the women to go and tell the disciples, meet Jesus in Galilee, mm -hmm. and they did nothing for they were afraid, period, end of book. What a downer. Yeah. Or is it something that says you readers need to step into the place of these disciples yeah. and, and move on with Jesus? Yeah. So you also have, uh, just briefly, uh, in the early th fourth century, you have Eusebius saying, I, I hardly find this in any manuscripts, mm. that long ending. Yeah, yeah. Towards the end of the 4th century, almost at the 5th, uh, Jerome says, I hardly find this in any Greek manuscripts. He may have seen it in some others. But by the time we get to the 6th century, Victor of Antioch, who wrote the first commentary on Mark, he says, I see it in about half the manuscripts. So this shows that what we have today in our manuscripts, about the majority of them, hardly represents what was going on in the early centuries. Right, right, right. 
And yet most Christians would say, if you had to make a choice between these two passages, hands down, the story of the woman caught in adultery, yeah. that goes in, long in your mark goes, goes out. out. Yeah. But that's an emotional Yep, it uh, totally baggage. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, the evidence against both of them is very, very strong. Mm. And as much as I'd like them to be in the text, especially the story of the woman caught in adultery, yep. I, I have to go on the basis of evidence, not yep. emotion. Yep, that's good, man. It's really good. Sylvia, you got a question for yes. us? Yes, some of our webinar guests are asking, so with all of this information, should we be concerned about these variants? And does that mean the Bible's not reliable? That's the first question. And then we had another question come in about the King James Version, but I can wait until you guys Yeah, why don't you hold on one. to that one, but but we'll we'll talk about the first one first. So, Dan, why don't you chime in and I'll add some stuff. Well, let me just uh, address that question about should we be concerned about these variants. In terms of the significant ones, how significant are they really? Bart Ehrman, in his book, Misquoting Jesus, uh, a man I've debated three times, uh, just a year ago he came out. He moved away from agnosticism, and now he's an atheist. But he's a, a Wheaton graduate, went to Princeton Seminary, got his master's and doctorate there under Bruce Metzger, a fine evangelical scholar. And uh, Bart uh, said, in misquoting Jesus, in the paperback version on page 252. <laughs> Sounds like you've, you've uh, you I, talked I, about this before. Yeah, yeah just every time, <laughs> just I, times, every time yeah. I debate him. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, he was asked by the publishers... Uh, so uh, why do you disagree with Professor Metzger about uh, the cardinal doctrines being affected by these textual variants? Mm -hmm. He said, I don't disagree with him. Yeah. Cardinal doctrines are not jeopardized by any of the textual variants. So I'm telling you, this is my source. I agree with him, uh, Bart, on this particular point. No essential doctrine is jeopardized by any textual variant. Mm -hmm. However, we do want to know what the Bible says. Right. For example, in Romans 5.1, we have a really significant variant. It either says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, yep. or let us yeah, have peace with God. Yeah. It's a single letter difference in Greek, but it makes a, a big difference in how we read that text and how we apply it, yep. So, and how we interpret it especially. No cardinal doctrine is affected, but there are a number of things, and, and our, our task is both to interpret the text correctly and also because I believe the Bible is inspired, I want to get back to the original text right. as much as possible. Right. Only the original is inspired. Yeah, and I think it's important to to note here as well, because a lot of times in these conversations I have with people, there's a, well, you don't have the original text. They keep saying this over and over again. And and I, I like to tell them, no, the, the original text is there, but it's the original text plus the additions that have happened over time. So the, the discipline of textual criticism is to trim the fat off the top so that you're left with what was original. So people are like, well, y'all don't have the original text. And I'm like, no, 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 we do. It's, it's still there. It's, it's our job to discern what, what these scribal tendencies have been over, over the years and to try to, as best we can, explain the differences by saying, oh, this scribe is from this place who has a tendency to do this. And also with the external and internal evidence, this makes the most sense that it's original. And so, again, when, we're, when we say we're trying to get back to the original text, we're not trying to get back to something that has disappeared and is now reappearing. It's always been there. What we're trying to do is to figure out, okay, to the best of our ability with the, with the information and the evidence that we have, what do we need to trim off so that we're left with what was originally written? I think it's good. I think in, in people's minds they get confused between the original manuscripts and the original, the original wording. Text. Yeah, you know, the right. original text of the original right. wording. We don't have the original manuscripts, right. 
but what was written on them, we still, we still have. That's right. And, and we find it in the manuscripts somewhere. I would, I would like to say we find it in our Greek New Testament, either above or below the line, right. the line that indicates the footnotes of the text of variants. Mm -hmm. Here, here's some evidence for that that I think is significant. In the last 150 years, uh, papyri became a huge player in recovering the wording of the original text of the New Testament. Ancient papyri, these were dug up in, in Egypt uh, in, in a number of places where it's above the water table. And uh, we got papyri that go back to the second century mm -hmm. uh, of the Greek New Testament. Uh, the numbers continue to increase. Right now we're at 139, 140 papyri. So it's mm -hmm. not very many. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all fragmentary, but some of them are very, very large uh, fragments, like 86 complete, uh, almost complete leaves. Wow. of an original 104-leaf manuscript that had Paul's letters, hmm. uh, written about AD 200. We still have that, P46, and, and uh, the vast majority of it is, is intact and, and, frankly, easy to read. Mm -hmm. So we have these manuscripts, and yet with all the papyri and the discoveries, which become collectively our earliest extant, that, that means still in existence, right. we know where they are, uh, witnesses to the Greek New Testament, there has not been a single reading in any papyrus in the last 150 years that's a new variant that has emerged where scholars say, this must be authentic. Yeah, yeah, good. What yep. they do is they confirm other readings that we already knew no, about to yep. be authentic. Yep. So it's just a matter of it's either above the line or below the line, yep. what we consider yep. to be authentic. And I, I think that's a huge point hmm. that we just, most scholars believe we don't need to do conjecture, guess. That's what right. the original wording is. It's just in the manuscript someplace. Yeah, that's right. And just so you guys can, I'll give a little bit of context here. So he keeps referencing papyrus. Uh, and the, the reason that uh, the papyri manuscripts are so important is because the early church didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> and the, the common paper back then were, would be made out of these uh, papyrus plants that grew along the Nile was primarily. But they would take these and, and make them. Uh, they kind of lay them over each other and put them down and they would use that to, that was just common paper back then. And so a lot of our earliest ones, because to kill an animal and skin it and use that parchment or the animal skin to write on is really expensive. Very and so the, these papyrus uh, fragments are typically the earliest ones that we have. And the, the problem with them though, is that they become brittle and fall apart kind of in your hand. And so we don't have as many of them because they don't last as long as the animal skin does. But that's what Dan's uh, referencing when, when he's talking about that. What's interesting, just a little quick side note, for the papyri, they use a carbon-based ink, and it is still black. Mm. Uh, I'm working through uh, three of the most important papyri right now. They're going to get published uh, uh, in about a year, and uh, working with two other uh, scholars at CSNTM. The text is largely pretty easy to read. The parchment manuscripts, which come later, those are on animal skins, and even though they, they try to bleach it, it starts to turn brown, mm -hmm. and they can't use a carbon-based ink. It doesn't stick to the, the, the skin. They have to use an iron-based ink, which rests. Yeah. So it's basically brown on brown. Yeah. Even though it lasts longer, sometimes it's quite a bit harder, harder to, read to read than the papyri, yeah, yeah. which is older. Yeah. Very ironic. <laughs> That's crazy. And then also, so I, I went uh, to the on the Albania expedition um, in 2007, and... When we were there, we were one of the primary manuscripts we were looking at was uh, 43. Yeah. And when they wrote on animal skin, they would write in ink, but then they would put it down and pick up like a, a silver or a gold. I can't remember what color it was, but they would write 
for the names of God. But then when they would close the codex, the ink would like eat into the other side of the page. So now, 1600, uh, 1500 years later, when you open it, it's hard to read because it show both pages are showing up on either side because it's been closed for right. so long, you know? And so you have to deal with this kind of thing as well. There aren't too many to purple codices, but this is a, a kind of a royal one where you take the parchment and you dip it in purple dye. And what's interesting on, on this one is all of them are gospels manuscripts mm -hmm. and the gold letters, everything is written in silver letters, actually everything on that. Card, That's right. Yeah, yeah. Except for four words. God, Lord, Jesus, and Christ. Those are always written in gold. That's cool. Yeah. What does that tell you about what the scribes know, thought yeah, right. about who Jesus Christ yep, was? Yep. And very early on. Mm -hmm. um, so well, why don't we get to that other question? So yeah. And another question came in that complements it in a sense, or you guys can maybe help the folks listening too with this one. But the first one was talking about some of our listeners have heard complaints about the accuracy of the King James translation. And then with so many manuscripts discovered since the KJV translation, um, how does it stand up to the latest manuscripts? And then the question that follows that, um, are there any recommendations on the most reliable translation to read for a layman? The King James Version, I think, is one that anybody who's a native English speaker should own. Mm. Uh, it, it gives us so many of our idioms. It's, it's a, the only literary monument ever produced by a committee. And it's, it's great literature, and it's a pretty darn accurate translation. Mm. Their goal, though, was not accuracy. Their goal was elegance. And so they would change the wording to reflect this, and at times it, it wasn't real accurate. Uh, but it's, it's not a bad translation at all. Sometimes it's a little bit difficult to read, but I, I recommend every Christian whose native tongue is English own a King James Bible. Mm. However, there are more accurate translations. It was essentially, essentially based on three Greek New Testament manuscripts. There were more that were used, but there were three that were the basis for it, all of them late. And uh, then uh, the, the King James has gone through several revisions, uh, three major ones, mm -hmm. 100,000 changes, almost all of them rather minor, mm -hmm. just spelling changes. But the King James Bible, when you look at modern translations, there are, uh, in terms of the Greek text that it stands behind, there's about 5,000 differences in terms of how scholars have viewed what the original text says. How many of those are important? Most of them are not. But modern uh, translations are now based on much better evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes back almost a thousand years older. And you have three manuscripts, actually Erasmus, who produced the Greek text that essentially stands behind the King James Bible. Uh, he, he worked with eight manuscripts, but three he relied on heavily. Today, we have 5,861 Greek right. manuscripts. We have <laughs> yeah. almost 1,000 times as many <laughs> yeah, manuscripts. Yeah. So yeah. why would we want to go back there? And the original preface to the King James did not say, this is the end all, the final copy of the Word of God. It talks about as no, more evidence comes out, we're going to continue to revise and more translations are going to be done. Yeah. So use the King James. It's a great translation. But if you want an accurate one, you need to get something like the ESV, which is a, an understated elegance translation, I, I like it very much, or the NIV 2011, mm. which I think has the the best textual basis now out there. Uh, 
another one is the Net Bible that I was uh, I, I worked on rather heavily. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't been revised. There's a few changes about a dozen or two dozen places we changed the wording based on recent evidence. Yeah. But uh, those three, I think, are, are just terrific translations. Yeah. NIV 2011, ESV, and the Net Bible. Yeah, and a lot of people ask me that, like, hey, you know, what, what Bible do you use, you know, as an equipping guy or whatever? And my answer to them is it depends on what I'm doing. So if I'm translating, then obviously I use the critical text. Um, I think that Nestle Allen's is the 28th edition. Is that right? That they're on right now? Yes. And then... So I'll just do that. But then if I'm if I'm studying, I'll nor- I normally start with the Net Bible. It's the New English Translation. It's free online. And the great thing about the Net Bible that Dan was working on is that they make translation choices, but then they explain in the footnotes why. And I've never seen a Bible with that many footnotes. <laughs> the footnotes are more like than any Bible the history. footnotes have is like three quarters of the page, you know. And uh, but it's great because it gives me a good baseline uh, starting point to understand what the issues are. What do I have to deal with as someone who's going to teach this? But then if I'm reading devotionally. I'll read the Living Bible or uh, I love the NIV to read. That's I memorize scripture out of the NIV because it flows better. There's there's choices that the committee makes to smooth over some stuff so it's more readable. And so it totally depends on what you're doing to answer that I question. That's, that's a good response. To that. And then I, I would say, too, as far as the variants go, and I would say this to uh, in response to one of the, the other questions is one of the reasons that, well, actually the reason that there are so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts. It's not even funny when you try to compare these things. And I know when I started to get into this about 10 years ago to really understand what was going on, this people asked me, especially after I came back from that expedition, like, hey, you just kind of did some study on some some original uh, looking at manuscripts. Did this challenge your faith at all? You know, and I was like, man, the exact opposite happened because I'm sitting here looking at you know, we had a, a late Byzantine, 13th century Byzantine manuscript, and I and you compare that to a 6th century where it's almost a thousand years removed, and you look at it, and the thing that stuck out to me was how remarkably the same they are, and that Absolutely. I think that's what gets missed. And as we as we talk about all of the differences and variants and the types of variants, we want to be honest about it because you know we we want to follow the truth where it leads. But at the same time, what needs to get hammered into you guys that are listening is I think it's nothing short of a miracle. The fact that this text has been transmitted over thousands of years and it is so remarkably the same. So I wanted to make that point before we moved on to. That's a great point to make. Yeah. The next deal. If if I can add just an anecdote here. Please do. At one of the uh, libraries I was at, it was a Muslim was the guy who was uh, bringing the manuscripts out. And I kept pointing to John 1, 1 in every single gospel's manuscript he brought out. And I read it. I said, see, the wording is exactly mm-hmm. the same. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what the century in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Mm-hmm. And I said, this goes all the way back to manuscripts in the second century. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no changes. I mean, there's, there's inconsequential ones in a couple of manuscripts and that's it. Right. Uh, but uh, every single manuscript, no matter the date, no matter the, the translation, always says Jesus is God in John 1.1. Mm-hmm. And that's true for the major passages about our, our major doctrines. Yeah. And so he, he began to 
question his own Muslim faith because yeah. it's it's incredible. Should, yeah, yeah, and I think that so there's no there's no manuscript that says like you know Frank died on the cross. You know, <laughs> like yeah. I mean, and that's that uh, Brian, um, yeah, or, Brian. or the life of Brian. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> memories that come flooding into my mind in the life of Brian, but. But uh, I think that's such an essential part of this conversation is to get back to Ehrman's quote himself of essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, um, to quote him directly. And I'm just sitting there going, hey, we have even look, even if you strip away all of the places in the New Testament where the variants are meaningful and viable, what you're left with is Orthodox Christianity. None of them are affected by that. And so I think we have to be honest in, in two different ways. One, we don't need to, because a lot of times people hear this and go, oh gosh, well, I just need to toss the baby out with the bath. Well, let's right. just toss it out, you know? And I'm like, whoa, 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 that is not responsible. You know, let's let's avoid the attitude of what I've heard you say, total despair, because there's no reason to do that. Like we have a, so much, this mountain of evidence. And then I think we need to avoid the other uh, attitude, which is to put our foot in the ground and be like, we're absolutely certain that that we know this is exactly what it says in those areas where variants are meaningful and viable. Because to be honest, you know, there's room for discussion. You know, it's kind of like a first and second edition of a book by an author. Uh, he's not going to change his opinions over time. And you have the first edition of Tolkien. You have a second edition. And they're going to say essentially the same thing. Is it elvish or elfish? You know, you know those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, right. Well, Tolkien, he was deeply concerned about that and told the editors, you better get this right. Yeah. But I don't think anybody else in the world thought that was important. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. So I want to reference again that 5P handout that you can download off of the webinar. I would encourage you guys to, to uh, memorize that. Don't memorize the whole page, but just the five Ps which are, what is the, what does the Bible profess about itself? What does it say about itself? So that's the first P. And then secondly, um, how is it produced? You know, 66 books, 40 authors, um, uh, you know, over 1500 years. And then how is it preserved? And that's primarily what we've been talking about today is the preservation of scripture over time. And then prophecy, all of the prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills them all. And the probability of that happening is astronomical. And then lastly, that, that fifth P is your personal testimony. This is the way that God has used scripture to transform my heart, you know, and that's a powerful testimony. So you can, you can memorize those five P's so that when you're at the water cooler and somebody asks you, Hey, why should I trust the scripture? You have a very simple way to uh, respond in these ways. And you can go back and listen to this and other resources to, uh, to fill in some of those gaps. Again, I'll recommend reinventing Jesus. And then I'll leave with this. There are references to Jesus's deity prior to the fourth century that we have manuscripts that testify to this, and we still have them today. Right. And these are the five. John 1, 1, the word was God. John 20, 28, where Thomas exclaims, mm -hmm. my Lord and my God. Romans 9, 5, the Messiah who is God over all. Um, Hebrews 1, 8, your throne, O God, will last forever. Second Peter 1, 1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so there's a, uh, again, there's all kinds of conspiracies out there that people made Jesus God. And I'm just like, hey, um, oh, as I've heard you say before, Dan, you know, there's a lot of weight that people give to presumption, you know? Yeah. Um, but like you've heard you say, hey, an ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption. And uh, the, the evidence overwhelmingly points to the fact that the deity of Jesus 
is not something that people conspired to come up with and grant to him in the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea, but actually was part of this early stream of orthodoxy about Jesus that goes all the way back to him. Absolutely. And uh, it's it's early. You can't say that uh, it's a nonsense. It's a stupid statement that some say that Constantine invented the deity of Christ. Yeah. Well, if he did, he must have been 175 years old because we have (laughs) evidence long before him. Yeah, totally, totally. Dan, thank you for your time. This has been so much fun. I mean, honestly, and we'll continue this conversation over lunch probably, but uh, we could we could go on and talk about this for a long time. But uh, thank you for your expertise, what you're doing. Please uh, check out CSNTM. And if the Lord leads you to give to them, just know your money will be going to the preservation of the word of God. So good luck trying to find (laughs) something better to give to. Yeah. Um, But uh, our next webinar is July the 14th. And we're going to have people from our marriage team in here. We're going to be talking about marriage. Please join us for that for next time. But thank you for hanging in. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the equipping webinar connecting discipleship, theology, and apologetics to everyday life.